My name is Bob. Thank you for saying that, Seth. Uh, I'm on the uh, advisory team for our church here, and uh, I work with an organization called The Navigators, and I've done that for over almost 38 years now, mostly with college students, most of the time uh, here in Lincoln uh, at UNL and Wesleyan. And uh, the last few years, I've been, my wife and I have been uh, working with young men and women in their 20s as well uh, that are graduated from, from school and are moving into the community, into their work world, and into their lives. And so that's what we do. Um, I'm married to my wife, Sandy, and uh, we have uh, four kids. Uh, two of them are daughters and two of them are sons. Our daughters both live in Omaha and are married. We also have uh, three grandchildren have uh, two granddaughters, and this week I got a grandson. Yeah. So uh, that's pretty good. So excited about that. And, uh, you know, I grew up in my early years in Denver, Colorado, and when I was a kid about five, six, or seven, uh, I uh, had a favorite TV program called Kids Say the Darndest Things. Okay? Now, you're thinking of it with Bill Cosby, okay? But I had it with Art Linkletter. How many had it with Art Linkletter? Okay, a few of us here, okay? Good. So, uh, I love to watch this program because, I mean, these kids that were sitting on the chairs in front of Art were my age, and Art had a way of asking a question that could reveal a very embarrassing answer. Um, I don't, I'm surprised some of these kids' as parents let them on, you know, so he would ask them questions, and I, can, I was looking on YouTube for some, because I was trying to reminisce about it one day, and I found an episode, and there's this little girl, and she's on a chair, and he says, what makes the perfect husband? She says, oh, he's got to have a lot of money, he's got to like horses, he can't be bossy, and he's got to be willing to have 22 kids. They, he asked her, so what do you want to be when you grow up? A nun. <laughs> Kids say the darndest things. You know, it's funny when a kid does that. It's great. Because it's just so downright honest. But what if there was an adult who spoke the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That's the man we've been looking at in the Gospel of John. Mo shared with us the first week that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And when he spoke to a person, it was gracious, but it was truthful. He loved them, but he got in their face. And when he spoke truth, it was full of grace, but when he was gracious, it was full of truth. You couldn't separate the two. Such a man, if he was speaking to authorities could be really threatening. Because if they were shading the truth in any way, shape, or form, he would speak past that and right into their lives. I imagine, can you imagine someone let loose like this in Washington, D.C. today? Who spoke the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and was interviewed by the media on a regular basis? That'd be a dangerous man. He'd be a man in danger, too. And that's where we start out in John chapter 1. This, or John, John chapter 7. In verse 1, it says, When Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. Galilee's further away. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews are the religious leaders. They are seeking to kill him 
because he's speaking the truth. And he's pushing past the veneer of who they are and what they proclaim. He's getting in their face. And this is what happens. It's threatening. The leaders of Israel wanted Jesus dead. And they were seeking to find a way to put him away. So here we find ourselves at a feast called the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of three great feasts that the Jews had every year. It was the most popular one because at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze, what they would do is they would come to Jerusalem and the people that lived there would participate in it too. And they would build booths like lean-tos out of limbs and branches and they would live in them for a week. Like eight days, it was one Sabbath to another, they'd live in these booths for a week. It's like a big camp out. A Jewish jamboree, okay? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, like camping out for a week with all these people and people coming in from the countryside and they're selling food and they're just having a great time. But they also had some religious observances that they'd go to the temple and participate in while they were there that week. And remember, and it was in remembrance of when they came out of Egypt, their forefathers came out of Egypt and had to live in tents for 40 years in the wilderness. And they had to reenact that to remember it. We're going to do something later on at the end of the service. We're reenacting something to remember it. And that's what they did. And so they're there and they're talking and they're muttering. What was that earlier that Mike read? They were muttering amongst themselves about this Jesus. We're going to look at three different groups of individuals and what they were talking about together and amongst themselves. I don't know if you've ever gotten like a new computer or a new appliance, or you can see this on a website. There's a little area like on a website on one of the menus is FAQs, or in your instruction booklet, FAQs. That's the place I go to first, frequently asked questions. So we're going to talk about frequently asked questions when people got exposed to Jesus and what they looked for and how they responded. Gospel FAQs. So in the first part, we, the first group of people we're going to look at is Jesus' brothers. Boy, your brothers know you, don't they? And it, Jesus' brothers thought they knew him. They grew up with him. He was their big brother. I mean, how'd you like to have Jesus for a big brother? And Mary goes, why don't you be like your big brother? He never does anything wrong. That'd be rough. Because he never did. Jesus as their big brother. And they said, you know, you're out preaching and teaching and you're healing and you're doing all these things. Why don't you go up to Jerusalem at the feast when most of the Jewish people are there and present yourself as the Messiah. Go up to the feast. That's what they're asking him to do. But it says in verse 5 here that they didn't believe in him. I bet that hurt. You know, they'd watched him their whole lives. They didn't believe in him. Sometimes the persons closest to you have the hardest time. These men were skeptics. They questioned the authenticity of Jesus. Was he who he said he was? Was he the Messiah? The skeptic says, I won't believe unless... dot, 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 fill in the blank. Now these three groups of people we're going to look at, we can see ourselves in all three of them. Because we all have points of life where we intersect with how they looked at it. Have you ever had a spot in your life where you say, I won't believe unless, God, you come through for me on this? Dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank. 
That's a skeptic. Well, what happens with these brothers anyway? They seem to be kind of pushing back and forth and trying to discover if Jesus will reveal himself. Well, as we go on in the Bible, other places in Matthew 13, it tells us the brothers' names. They're James and Judas and Joseph and Simon. And then in Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus has died on the cross and been resurrected from the dead, a group of people are meeting to pray because Jesus said, in an amount of time, in 40 days, the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and they're waiting for that. And who's there but the disciples? Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers and his sisters. Somehow they become believers. Now, I don't know if you've had somebody in your family die. I have. But I can tell you three days later they didn't raise from the dead. And if they did, I'd think something was really going on. And these brothers and sisters have come to believe in Jesus. So much so that the book of James and the book of Jude, those are two of Jesus' brothers, Bible historians tell us that they wrote those books, his half-brothers. They call themselves a servant of Jesus Christ. James, a servant of Jesus Christ, is how it starts. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, is how it starts. It doesn't say, James, Jesus is my big bro. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. This skeptic has become a follower of Jesus. When I was a college student at University of Nebraska back when the earth's crust hardened. I know you were thinking it, so I just went ahead and said it. Okay, So, so we had a guy come and speak. His name was Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell uh, was working for Campus Crusade for Christ. But Josh McDowell, when he was in college, he had a bunch of Christian friends. And he was always asking them these questions, these skeptic questions, which are tremendous questions. And they said, you know, Josh, we want to challenge you to something. And Josh was like Phi Beta Kappa. I mean, he was smart, smart, smart. They said, why don't you try to disprove the resurrection? If you can do that, you'll tear all of Christianity down. So he said, okay. So he went after it, and he did the historical study, and he went and found all that he could find. And Josh became a follower of Jesus Christ. Josh travels the world to tell people about Jesus Christ, and he was here at the University of Nebraska giving a talk called The Great Resurrection Hoax which is what he thought it was, and he shared about how he had come to find that Jesus indeed was the Son of God, and he did indeed rise from the dead. In the life of the brothers of Jesus, in the life of Josh McDowell, another man named Lee Strobel is a follower of Jesus Christ, but he was a, he was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, did legal work there. And his wife came to know Christ, and she challenged him to do the same thing. So he went and did it, and he became a follower of Jesus, and he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And if you'd like to investigate that book, there's some free copies on a table outside here when you leave. Get them while they're hot, okay? They go faster than Krispy Kremes, okay? Go get them. Or if you've got a friend that is wrestling with those questions, there are answers to those questions. More than ever before. It excites me greatly. There's hope for the skeptic. Well, let's read on in the story. Starting out in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up in the temple and began teaching. 
So Jesus doesn't come when his brothers are trying to force him to come. He doesn't come to present himself as the Messiah. He comes in the middle of the feast and begins to teach. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is that this man has learning when he's never studied? In their culture, all these other religious leaders, when they would teach, they would quote rabbis and teachers that had preceded them. So-and-so says this, so-and-so says that. Jesus never did that. He just spoke out of his own authority. When he quoted something, it was called the Old Testament. You ever heard of that book? That's where he quoted from. The rest of it, he spoke just directly from his life and his heart, from his relationship with God the Father. He told them that God was his Father. This made them very angry. This is one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus spoke from the authority of God. These men were not skeptics, they were cynics. The difference is when a skeptic says, I won't believe unless, a cynic says, I won't believe regardless. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me, but I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to consider it. I'm not going to look at it. This is how they treated Jesus. They wouldn't consider him. They saw saw false teaching when he spoke in his words. They saw the devil in his miracles. They saw blasphemy when he made claims about his relationship with God. And they were scandalized by his love for sinners. Everything Jesus did was like fingernails on a chalkboard to them. They were cynical. If you look in the Bible again, in the book of Acts, after Jesus comes, dies on the cross, is resurrected, the church begins to grow. And there's a man who's a supreme cynic. His name is Saul. And he has decided he's going to stamp out the church whatever he does. He's on the road to a city called Damascus, and there's a new church there, and he's going to stomp it out. And he's on the road, a bright light appears, and he is blinded by the light. He literally cannot see. And he hears a voice out from the light speak to him. And he said, the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul recognizes this is God appearing to him. Because he says this, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And the voice says something he's not expecting at all. The voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, when, we, when Saul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. Because Jesus is intimately connected with his church. And Saul has a decision to make when he hears these words. And he makes it unbelievably quickly because this is what he says. What do you want me to do, Lord? Saul makes a 180 in his mind. The cynic of cynics. 
What Hitler was to the Jews, Saul was to the Christians. And he turns at 180 and he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? All of us need to ask Jesus on a daily basis those two questions. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do, Lord? Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do, Lord? There is hope for the cynic. If God can get a hold of the life of a cynic like Saul, who we know is Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, he can get a hold of any life. That was Saul. I'd like you to consider a thought. This is a quote that I, one of my favorites about Jesus. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him and little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism he he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Paul came face to face with the mystery of Jesus. These religious leaders were perplexed and stumped by the mystery of Jesus. They had become cynical. There's a third group of people, which we read on later, starting out in verse 25. This is, we looked at the brothers who were close and intimate with him. We looked at the religious leaders who were pushing back against him. And then there's just kind of everybody else, the crowd, those that were muttering, who is this man? I think he's this, I think he's that. They questioned the accuracy of what they were hearing and what they were seeing. Did he match up with what they already knew? They looked at the positives and negatives. They outweighed the pros and the cons. Who is this Jesus? Some of them said, this must be the Messiah. Some of them said, well, but the religious leaders don't like him. They were like spiritual ping pong balls. Back and forth, back and forth. One of the people that's written about later on in the passage, we didn't read this, but later on in chapter 7, is a man named Nicodemus. It's a guy that Austin talked to us about a few weeks ago. He came and sat in front of Jesus, met with him privately, and put out a, what, he, what he knew about Jesus. He said, you surely, you're a teacher, come from God. And Jesus, as he often does, just spoke straight past what he said and spoke directly to his heart and said, you must be born again. That's, you know, you, I am a teacher come from God, but that's, Way too short of who I am. 
You need to start all over, Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel, but you haven't even figured it out yet. You're not even in spiritual kindergarten. That'd be hard to hear, wouldn't it? That's what he spoke to him. He said, you, you got to be born again. I have a grandson just born this week. He's beginning. He said, you need to begin, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, as we read on here, look at verse uh, 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that's what we just talked about, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, who's arguing about him, said to them, does our law judge a man without giving him a hearing and, a, and learning what he does? See, that's what Nicodemus had done. He sat down with Jesus and gave him a hearing and learned what he did. He said, you haven't even sat down with the man. You haven't listened to him. I have. Here's their response. They replied, are you from Galilee too, you country bumpkin? You're from the sticks. We city people have it all figured out. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What are they saying? Search the scriptures. You're a country bumpkin and you don't know your Bible. They tried to put him down. They, but Nicodemus, previously he'd come to him secretly. Now he's with his Pharisee friends standing up for Jesus. And we get to the end of the Gospel of John, we'll find out that when Jesus died on the cross and they went to lay him in a grave, the grave of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, that Nicodemus was right there with him, helping to prepare Jesus for his burial. Nicodemus is out in front now. He says, I don't care what the Pharisees think. I don't care what the teachers of the law think. I'm aligned to myself with Jesus at the lowest point. Because nobody really knew he was going to rise from the dead. He told them, but they didn't believe him yet. At the lowest point, he allied himself with Jesus. There's hope for the critic. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote an essay called God in the Dock. Now, when I saw that, people told me I had to read this essay. I thought, okay, I'll read the essay. God in the Dock. Is he going fishing? Is it down, you got a new boat, or what's God in the dock, you know? So I found out that in a, in a Jewish courtroom, not a Jewish, a British, sorry. We're skipping nationalities here. In a British courtroom, C.S. Lewis was British, where the, the person who's being accused of a crime stands on something called the dock. It's like a raised platform. It's got three sides on it. It kind of leans on there and looks at the judge and the jury. Man, wouldn't you hate that? This is what he says, God in the dock. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even be, may end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. See, in the world that you and I live in, we are judging God. God is not judging us. We're making decisions about who he is. We're not asking him what his decision is about us. That's what's going on with these people at this, this eight-day festival. They're discussing who Jesus is. Jesus is in the dock 
And they're trying to make a decision about if they want to believe him or not. And we all can be in that place. Now this festival kind of had a special thing about it. Every day they would go to a pool called the Pool of Siloam, which we'll hear about next week. But they go to this pool that was in the temple area. They'd take a golden pitcher, put it in, and then they'd go to the altar and pour it out at the altar. And on the last day of the feast, right at the top of the feast, the highest point of the feast, they would do this same ceremony and they would pour that water out. And just as they pour that water out, this is what Jesus says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now think about it. These religious leaders have been working busily and hard to put all this together. And at the highest point of the feast, Jesus interrupts it and says to skeptics, critics, and cynics something they're not expecting him to do. And he doesn't answer the intellectual questions of their heart. He answers other questions, the deeper questions, the questions about our morals and our relationships and our spiritual questions that are deeper down underneath. I think intellectual questions are great. I spend a week every summer going back to school to learn about how to answer some of those big questions. There's some amazing stuff out there to answer those questions. But even if you get all those questions answered and you don't answer those deep down questions, it isn't going to matter. Because you're not just a brain on a stick. You're a person. You have an emotional side. You have a spiritual side. You have a moral side. And all of those questions are deeper down under. And Jesus says, you and I are incredibly thirsty. And only he can satisfy that thirst. Only he can meet that need of our hearts. And he doesn't even speak to the intellectual question. Now all of these people I shared about, Paul and, and about Jesus' brothers and about Nicodemus, they got, all got their questions answered eventually. The problem is, though, is we want to understand in order to believe Jesus says you need to believe in order to understand. Here's how he says it. Go back a few verses in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether I'm teaching from God or whether I speak of my own authority. See, if I'll believe and obey God, if I'll do God's will, then I'll know. But we want it the other way around. Kind of, Jesus, prove yourself to me, and then I'll decide. He says, no, you need to put your faith and trust in me. And then you'll know. Then you'll know. That's the way it's been in my life. Both intellectually, personally, whatever. So I don't know where each of you is at in your relationship with Christ. If you're still investigating him, keep investigating. There's answers. But recognize that they're not just intellectual questions that you have as a person. French philosopher named Jacques Ellul, this is quote of his that I really like, if I can find it here in all my papers. He says, in all my contacts with the non-Christian world, I have noticed again and again their amazement at the face-to-face fact that for the truth, that for us, that's believers, the truth is not an idea, a theory, or a dogma. The truth is a person. 
We don't often see the importance of this, but non-Christians see this as the remarkable, unique thing about Christianity. See, when God wanted to reach us, he didn't send a book. He didn't send an encyclopedia. He didn't even send Wikipedia. He sent a person. Because we're people. And we have more than just intellectual needs. And I'm not saying those are bad. But Jesus speaks past that. He knows that we need forgiveness. He knows that we need meaning and purpose. He knows we need to be unconditionally loved. And only he can do that. I love my wife. I love my kids. But my wife will tell you, sometimes it's not unconditional. But Jesus loves us unconditionally. He loves us more than we love ourselves. You need, I need a person who loves me infinitely, even though my sin makes me thoroughly unlovely. I need a person who will love me, even though I've judged him and tried to figure out if he is really who he says he is. And that's not even the worst thing about it. It's not my judgment of him, but it's his judgment of me because I'm a sinner. I need him. I need his work in my life. We all need that. If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus also says this. Not only does he want to fill the hole that's in your life with living water, he wants you to be a fountain of living water. He wants you not to be a bucket where you hold the water to yourself, but he wants you to be a channel where that living water can flow. He wants you not to be a reservoir that you ride your boat of enjoyment on. He wants you to be a river where nourishment and grace may flow out to a hurting world. That's his call to each one of us. You're a river to bring refreshment and nourishment. You're a channel to which, through which the living water can flow.